Hello and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hansen. Today we are joined by Tiffany Angus, a senior lecturer in publishing and course leader for the MA in Creative Writing at Anglia Ruskin University. Hello, Tiffany. Hello. <laughs> at Worldcon 75 in Helsinki, Tiffany premiered a presentation entitled Where Are the Tampons? It proved so popular that she presented it again at FantasyCon 2017 and on her course at Anglia Ruskin. Someone has even written a story based on this presentation. And since it's proved so popular, we've invited Tiffany on to Breaking the Glass Slipper to talk about the estrangement of women's bodies in apocalyptic fiction. For those of you unfortunate enough to have missed Tiffany's presentation, it begins as follows. We live a daily existence in which we are consciously and constantly concerned with what is going on with ourselves. Am I about to start my period? Is that sweat or blood? Should I shave today or will anyone see me? Did I remember to take my pill this morning? How much longer will my coil work? What will happen when I go into labour? Will my midwife or doctor be there? How much will it hurt? Will I poo on the table? Who will be watching? But in an end of the world scenario, it all disappears, at least for a moment. There is survival to concentrate on. Finding food, finding shelter, dealing with nuclear fallout or a pandemic, dealing with random violence, keeping people safe and, and so on. But these don't mean that things are easier if you're female. To go from living in our convenient existence to living in one where the next meal is uncertain only means that dealing with menstruation, contraception and reproduction gets harder. So why isn't this represented in fiction? So, Tiffany, tell us about how both the title and the opportunity to give this presentation came about. So I had finished reading uh, Emily St. John Mandel Station 11. This was a couple of years ago. And uh, I was talking to one of my colleagues who actually had been my PhD supervisor, Farah Mendelssohn. And I was talking to her about it and she said, yeah, it was interesting, but where are the tampons? And I thought, oh my gosh, you're right. It's the end of the world. You know, all this stuff's going on. Sooner or later, that's going to happen. So why, when everybody goes and gets all this food and you know all the stuff they have to get and they stockpile it, how come nobody's getting tampons? Nobody's getting pads. Nobody's using it as, as a uh, like money, you know, they're not using it as currency. It's not as valuable as food or water because when you don't have that stuff and you're used to having that stuff, suddenly not having it is really going to be a big deal. And so I started to think about it and uh, I started to read more books. I love end of the world scenarios since I was, I, don't know, I read Stephen King's The Stand when I was 11 and that kind of warped my brain a little bit. And so I went back and I started reading more and more apocalyptic fiction to see what had happened in them. And I noticed that it just wasn't brought up. And I thought it was really important to start looking deeper into it. And and so I started I started looking at things and I started keeping track of what was going on. So I started putting together this story and this this study, but I had to come up with some parameters because there's a lot of apocalyptic fiction out there. When you start to look at it, you realize it's overwhelming. And I thought, okay. I need to have some rules in place and I need to start with a list. And so uh, a friend of mine um, helped establish and runs the post-apocalyptic book club in London. It's been around for about uh, eight or nine years and they've got a few hundred members. It's a really big book club and they've read 90 some odd books so far. They've read adult books and they've read YA. And I started with their list. I started going through the list and a lot of it was familiar. A few, quite a few things weren't. And I added some stuff that I knew to it. But because there was so much, I had to have some limitations or I would be reading books forever. And so I thought, I want to focus on people in the middle of the apocalypse or on characters who had lived through it within their living memory. Because some books um, go forward too far. They go forward 100 years or 500 years or 1,000 years. But I wanted it to be in the middle of, you know, when all the when everything goes to hell, frankly. And so that's how I started to break everything down. And in the end, I ended up with 45 books covering eight decades of science fiction publishing. Um, it included adult titles and YA titles. And I put them – I got to make charts, which was so much fun. And I put things in chronological order and started to count. I just literally started to, you know, count – how many women had written them, how many men had written them, how many had mainly female protagonists, how many had mainly male protagonists. And I started from there. Fantastic. I mean, um, so what did you find um, in terms of breaking down for representation of men and women, both um, male and female writers writing about this subject and also protagonists within it? And, and how did that all how did that all play out? Well, strangely, across these 45 novels, 
the breakdown of the authors and the breakdown of the characters is almost identical. I ended up with 15 female authors and 30 male authors, which is about like 33, 66% split. As far as the characters, um, in some cases, something like World War Z has a boatload of characters. And so I had to kind of count how many were, you know, mainly how many were female and how many were male and figure out if there was a, if there was weighted one way or another and it ended up being male in that case. And so that's how I counted the characters, the, the main characters, the protagonists. And I ended up with 18 who were female and 27 who were male, which broke down to like 40%, 60%. So it's really, really close, strangely, in that breakdown. Um, there were cases where male authors wrote novels with female or predominantly female protagonists, you know, p- female cast. And there were seven of those. And there were four female authors who wrote novels with male or predominantly male protagonists, main characters. Um, so there was some overlap each direction. It wasn't just mainly female writers writing female characters. And so from there, I took a look at it and I thought, okay, so this started in my, the start of my study was the 1940s, and I wanted to see when people were writing. And I made another chart because I like charts. <laughs> and I took a look, and it was really interesting that male writers were really worried about the end of the world in the 1950s. Like they were seriously worried. Whereas female writers, um, in in the fifth in the 40s, there was nothing. In the 50s, one only one book from my from my study was written by a female writer. That, that met these parameters in the 1950s. But at the same time, I had five for men. And so the, the women writers starts to increase a little bit. And we get to the 2000s and I have five. Whereas when we get to the, when I look at the men, we get to the 2000s and I've got eight. And then it continues like that to the 2010s. There's another eight. And so men were really worried about the end of the world in the 50s, which was, you know, during the height of the Cold War or the beginnings of the Cold War and the people being scared of nuclear war Uh, in the 80s, when, again, we had worry about the Cold War, especially in America. And then in the last 20 years or 18 years, people very worried about the end of the world. And it's it's not a surprise that this that this coincides with these things. But it was just interesting to see how for men it like spiked and went back down, spiked and went back down, spiked again. And for female writers, it just slowly started to rise. And I think that shows not just women being interested in the apocalypse in general, but women starting to actually publish more science fiction. I mean, part of the um, your research that I've been reading here says that uh, very few women write apocalyptic fiction in general, but they have written several ap- apocalyptic YA titles both on and off your list. Um, you mentioned The Hunger Games, but said it didn't fit the parameters, um, although it is arguably dystopian. Um, why do you think women tend to gravitate towards YA apocalyptic fiction? Well, I started to think about that, and I thought, you know, I wonder if a lot of or if more women are writing YA apocalyptic fiction, which is really difficult to say over and over again, by the way, <laughs> if more women write YA apocalyptic fiction because some of them are mothers or they're carers and their main concern is how kids deal with these earth shattering events. You know, they're they're wondering how, you know, their kids or their friends kids would deal with that sort of thing. And I wondered if women weren't writing apoc- apocalyptic fiction in general because they didn't want to think about the end of the world so much because so much hardship that they have in the world as it is now. And that like men have been doing it for so much longer. They didn't think they had something new to say or because of the tradition of men writing the end of the world, because they're usually responsible for it. And so women possibly turned and thought, okay, you know, grownups have been writing about grownups dealing with this. How would a kid deal with it? And so a, a lot of strangely, a lot of the YA stuff, is written by women. They write the apocalyptic fiction. They write the dystopian fiction. There are men who write it, um, but it just seemed more weighted toward female writers. I mean, it's interesting you should say that because um, I'm a mother and just after my little girl was born, um, I had a dream that I was in the apocalypse back in in my hometown in the Yorkshire Dales. And uh, I was trying to call up my husband to find out where he was because the world was coming to an end and it was obviously important to be with him. I know. Well, I, I won't tell you about the dreams I had just before I gave birth. They were really strange and peculiar. <laughs> but I dreamt that um, I suddenly went, oh, where's my child? Because, you know, this was all rather new to me. I wasn't used to having children in my dreams or rather not my own children. Yeah. And, and my husband went, well, didn't you pick her up from nursery? 
And I was like, and then I turned around and there she was. And when I woke up later, I realized that what it was, was that my panic levels had massively increased and had nearly woken me up from the dream. And it's almost like my subconscious went, we can't deal with the idea of the apocalypse and not getting to my child. Therefore, we'll just randomly have her behind me, even though I didn't actually pick her up from nursery and nursery is like, you know, 80 miles away. So I think you might be onto something there that, you know, women do tend to sort of look at um, the children's or young adults, as you say, teenagers role um, more closely because they are perhaps more orientated towards that way. Not to say that men are, you know, completely distanced from kids or, or exactly. the whole idea, but it, it certainly as a, as a mother, I know that my instincts were very strong. And, and based on that, you know, you could then go on, like you say, to, to write all these, these good fiction. But, yeah. I mean, if you think about like, um, like teachers right now, you know, teaching is predominantly a female career. And if you look at what's going on in the States, oh, in the last three days after the last school shooting and all these kids are now walking out and people are now protesting. And a lot of that is, you know, the, the pantsuit nation, which is the, the women's, they did the women's march last year after Trump got signed in, you know, it's there behind it as well. And so I, I think. In a way, even though I don't even have kids, I still think about and I but I teach. I still think about what would you know, what would my kids do if they had to deal with this stuff? I mean, I know that previously, Lucy and I in particular um, have discussed the idea that sometimes because women do tend to write a lot of YA, that any woman who writes a book with YA, with a YA protagonist in it, sorry, with a a young protagonist in it will automatically be filed as YA, whereas somebody who wrote um, the same sort of thing might be put in the sorry a man who wrote the same sort of thing might be put in the adult category i was thinking of mark lawrence's red sister which i'm sure because it deals with a young girl and and training and to be a well to be an assassin effectively but a young girl um and her her time at this training school there was a little part of me that read it and wondered if this was written by a woman might it have been placed in the ya fantasy category because it's an excellent book but very very focused on women i mean what do you do you think about that do you think some of these women were naturally put into YA or did you find um, there were plenty of guys who'd written the same sort of thing and were also YA or had they been moved into adults? Well, I think it's interesting just to talk about the, the whole YA categorization in general. I mean, if you think about, I, I don't know, my brain just went back to when I was in high school, you know, Huck Finn, Mark Twain wrote Huck Finn and it, it's not considered YA. I mean, granted it was written in 1800s and so you didn't have that, that categorization then, but you know, it's, it, that and like David Copperfield, those are were for not specifically for kids to read. It was for sort of everybody to read. But something like Little Women is specifically for girls to read. And so that categorization thing happened before we had, you know, science fiction fantasy as a really established genre. Um, but that's kind of off the it's kind of off track a little bit. <laughs> but it, it's. When I when I broke it down and I started to look at like how much we I had that was YA I didn't have a lot, but what I had um like I had uh, Robert Swindell's Brother in the Land you know male writer male protagonist Louise Lawrence Children of the Dust female writer two thirds female protagonist so it went on the female side um, Life as We Know It by Susan Beth Pfeiffer female protagonist female author and so. The ones that I saw, there didn't seem to be a lot of um, like overlap. Where it was a male writer and a female protagonist, or a female writer and a male protagonist, as far as the YA. It, sent, it tended to stay along the same lines. Okay, so moving on from considering the authors who write this um, kind of books to the characters that appear in them, do you think that there's an irony that with, within apocalyptic fiction, women's biological functions are so overlooked? But actually, the majority of the plots within this subgenre focus on women as being able to have babies and repopulate the world. So surely you can't repopulate the world unless you have things like menstruation and periods. But that is completely bypassed in fiction. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's the end of the world. You know, population's decimated. We have to rebuild. We have to we have to repopulate. So let's get cracking and have some babies. And it's all so simple. And yeah, like you say, there's there's no menstruation. There's none of that is is mentioned and i i think so much of it has to do with especially western society's inability to deal with it anyway you know we have the blue water on commercials for the pads uh, just recently there was actually a commercial um where there was blood used or red used and it was such a controversy yes yes that one you know and and it's so controversial and it's it's freaking people out and they don't want to see that kind of thing on television so 
we we push all that away so much. And so then when we have this tradition of mostly men writing apocalyptic fiction, you know, they they don't have much to especially we're talking like in the fifties and the sixties, they didn't have they were not in the room when babies were even born. So <laughs> ta da, baby. And <laughs> <laughs> so so of course they're not gonna deal with, you know, menstruation, with infertility issues, with stillbirth, with, you know, anything that that is outside their their world as it was anyway. And so I just find it so interesting that, you know, it's the end of the world and in these books women just start having babies and it's just easy and fine and everything's great. And it all happens off screen. Just like it did in the sixties. You went because I know I'm trying to find the, the part where you talk about this, but yes, talking about childbirth, for example, there isn't an awful lot of um childbirth actually within books, even in normal fiction, um, never mind post apocalyptic. But you think it would be included in something that is post apocalyptic where the whole point is to get babies, but again, it all happens off screen. And I think you had a couple of, of um examples where they did actually you did actually see the childbirth. Yeah, so often it happens off screen. Like even even the female writers would have a thing where they'd say, I don't have the quote in front of me, but you know, Ruth's baby was born in February and James was born the June after, and that was it. And so when I got to where there were actually births, you know, quote unquote on screen or on the page, it was male writers who did it. Um uh Joe Hill does it in The Fireman at the end of The Fireman. He undoes what his father did, because Stephen King, I thought you know, after reading The Stand when I was so young, I thought, oh, yeah, well, Franny has a baby. And I went back and I read it and realized, no, it happened off screen. But Joe Hill has it happen right there on a boat at the end of the book. Sorry, spoilers. But she's pregnant through the whole book, so it's not really spoiling anything. <laughs> um, so and he did it. And, you know, this this very, very physical, visceral sort of thing. And the other person who who did it, which I thought was really interesting, um, and the book that I really got into was uh, Josh Mallerman's Bird Box, because because of the situation uh, of the apocalypse itself. Um, what's just to, to you know break it down really simply? Um, there's something out there that when people see makes them automatically suicidal, and everybody's dying, and nobody knows what it is because if you see it, you die. So everybody goes around with their eyes closed. Um, and so this, these two women end up in this house together with a bunch of other people and they go into labor at the same time, which is so, you know, convenient. And they're there with their eyes shut having, or part of the time they have their eyes open and then they have to have their eyes shut because this terrible thing happens. And so because it's written from the, the female's point of view, it's, you're, you're somewhere and you have your eyes shut. So all, everything else becomes much more, um, enhanced. And everything going on around her is so terrible and so tragic and so kind of disgusting that the childbirth becomes part of all that. And so Josh does not hold back in that scene. And a lot of really bizarre things happen. But those are the only two really good examples of this. Whereas everybody else, like you say, it just happens off screen and ta-da, there's a baby. If we could just go back to what you said about Joe Hill going where his, his dad wouldn't go uh, with childbirth. Interestingly enough, um, I don't know if it counts as post-apocalyptic fiction. There is a sort of pandemic within it, but it doesn't actually quite result in the end of the world, or at least the end of the world if we know it. But in Stephen King and Owen King's Sleeping Beauties, they do have a section where a woman gives birth there in the narrative with, like you say, all the gory details. And um, yeah, and I kind of wonder about Stephen King when he's not put it in previously, whether or not, given Joe's done it and now he's done it, but with Owen as well, who is also his son, whether there might be a little bit of, come on, dad, but let's let's put some childbirth in. <laughs> Which is hilarious because, I mean, I've read Stephen King all my life and the man does not hold back on gross. So I, I wonder maybe, why this was it. Maybe he doesn't see childbirth as gross. I mean, if he's got two sons, he must have gone through it at least twice or had his wife go through it at least yeah. twice. Maybe he is somebody who goes in and doesn't want to portray it as something horrible. I mean, you're talking about um, Bird Box and saying how um, Josh has put childbirth as being this really terrible, awful, gory thing. And I mean, it, it's not the cleanest or the most <laughs> fun uh, you know, event in a woman's life, but it shouldn't be equated with horror, really. Um, and I mean, I, I suppose I'd rather not have it at all than have it in as something that is designed to terrify people. Um, yeah, I think if I read it, it's no help. <laughs> terrify <laughs> perfectly well on its own. Well, in the case of Bird Box, it isn't that he makes the childbirth itself 
terrible. It's just that everything going on around her, I don't want to really spoil it. They're making it into a movie and I don't want to ruin it for people, but everything going on around her is so tragic. And then something that happens right afterward is so disgusting and weird and estranging. Um, so there's that. And the thing with Stephen King, I think that's interesting is, and, and I remember this from his book on writing was there was this idea. A lot of people won't talk about something because they're afraid it'll happen. And his mom taught him as he grew up, no, you say the things and it won't happen. And so it's interesting that he won't write about, you know, a dangerous childbirth or a thing, because according to his philosophy, if you do write about it or talk about it, you've, you've taken away the, the possibility of it happening. And, and he writes about everything else. is so, I mean, the shit weasels, for instance, in, I've just lost the name of the book. It's completely that, gone. Dreamcatcher? No, oh. no. Is it Dreamcatcher? I don't know. I remember Weasels I in the Stand. So. Oh, no, this was Shit Weasels. But I don't remember Shit Weasels. <laughs> oh, yeah. You'd remember the Shit Weasels. I think I would, yeah. <laughs> you know, so he's not afraid of going there with body stuff, but it's just interesting that he didn't do it with Childbirth in the Stand. And I literally just bought the new book, his and Owens, like a week and a half ago, and I haven't even cracked it yet. So I, I'll have to read that one and catch up. It, it is absolutely excellent. I mean, it, it, when it arrived, it was like a doorstop um, and I got through it in a couple of days because it, yeah, it was just amazing. Yeah. But um, I passed it on to a fellow reviewer and he in return bought me an ebook, which was so much better, um, <laughs> uh, particularly as I have a habit of um, reading when I put my daughter to sleep and I have been known to accidentally drop my book on her. So uh, you don't want to be dropping <laughs> sleeping beauties on uh, on your child. I'm a sleeping um, beauty. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we focus here a lot on women's bodily functions and obviously being a, a podcast about women, that's um, that's that's fine. But, you know, it, it's not just about women. It's about realistic fiction in general. So what about the bodily functions of men? Um, I mean, are they addressed at all or are they equally glossed over? Is it just too grim to have people going to the toilet or throwing up or something like that? It's pretty much glossed over. I mean, every now and then you have, you know, somebody vomiting, but, you know, they vomit behind a bush, they're off stage. But, yeah, I mean, there's never, you, you know, you have you have the end of the world and, you know, you either have a, a an apocalypse of scarcity or you have an apocalypse of plenty. And in either case, certain things just aren't mentioned. You know, there's never prostate problems. Um, if somebody's a diabetic in the, a diabetic in the very beginning, it's very much, you know, Chekhov's, it's Chekhov's insulin. There's going to be a problem later on in the story with somebody being diabetic. And that happens in one of the books that I looked at. Um, but the the things that happen to you as a result of going through an apocalypse and suddenly not having access to, you know, medical help doesn't seem to come up as much. And so, you know, these, these characters age, but they, I don't want to say they don't seem to slow down, but, you know, I'm mumbledy. 40 mumbly years old and things start happening and that doesn't seem to happen to the characters. And I'm starting to wonder, you know, when do you start to show really what happens to a body when it starts to break down a bit? Because random weird stuff happens to your body. And so, yeah, you know, there's no prostate problems. There's no, uh, you know, they might have a heart attack, but you know, we don't know if they have high cholesterol after the apocalypse and what happens to them from that. It just a lot of uh, a lot of body stuff just gets ignored. And, uh, you know, the lack of medication is going to going to will lead to a lot of problems. Like one thing I talk about in my in my paper is uh, um, how the lack of having certain contraceptives will lead to problems. Um, if you take the pill for endometriosis, for example, to, to stave off certain certain um, uh, I've lost it, certain symptoms of endometriosis. And then suddenly you don't have access to that medicine. It's going to really affect your way of life. And you're not going to be able to keep up with other people. And you're not going to be able to work or farm or, you know, scavenge or do whatever you need to do to survive. And that kind of thing isn't shown in, in any of this fiction. I mean, it comes back to the the, the theory, the solar panel theory, I, I tend to call it just informally, which is my theory about apocalyptic fiction, which is I'm always amazed in current modern day apocalyptic fiction, post-apocalyptic fiction, how many of the heroes and heroines managed to find someone with solar panels or with their own source <laughs> of electricity or with an oil refinery, for example. Yeah. And I, I was pondering this when I was writing um, my own uh, post-apocalyptic um, story. And I was going, well, you know, if they didn't find it, they probably wouldn't survive. And they would probably die out there on the road or be eaten by aliens or succumb to the flesh eating virus, whatever it is. 
And in a way, it's kind of weird because I appreciate that it's a, a plot device, but then I also go in a, if this truly happened, then the people who would survive would be the people who found the solar panels and uh, the cars that ran and things like that. And I suppose it's the same with medication. If you've got anybody who's got, you know, a terminal illness or anything like that, it would be great to read a story about them, but it is probably only going to end one way if the world completely um, falls down around our ears. And for that reason, I think they don't tend to appear in stories because they it, it's you can't necessarily save people like that. People who are on oxygen are going to eventually run out. And unless you get a really um, snazzy plot device, it's going to be a very, very sad tale. So it's kind of it's kind of a weird one because you only really get hale, hearty people who aren't affected by diabetes or um, by any by any sort of liver failure or anything. Because in this scenario, if you are supposed to believe it, then they wouldn't necessarily be the ones who survive. Um, I mean, I think it would be fantastic to have some stories that, you know, did explore these ideas. And like you say, diabetes, there must be ways to um, control it that people would, you know, think about. And presumably, if you are a diabetes sufferer yourself, you know, you would know exactly where to go and what to get. And it would be yeah. great to see some things like that. But I can I can see why it hasn't appeared in apocalyptic fiction so far, because they are just very hard characters to write unless you've got, you know, the, the magic pharmacy that they come across that happens to be next to the house with solar panels with the car with gas parked outside. <laughs> exactly. Because because like with the with the example of diabetes, with diabetics, they have to have insulin and insulin has to be kept fresh. And one yeah. way to keep it fresh is to keep it cold. And it, this happened in um, William Fortune's uh, one second after, which is one of the books I read, which I didn't like, you know, just going to say that. But the one thing about it was his daughter was diabetic. And a lot of the time he was working to try to find more more insulin and try to keep it fresh. And, you know, spoiler, his daughter dies because that's it's it sort of marked at the very beginning. Like you say, if, you know, people are on oxygen or they have whatever medical problem, you can find a pharmacy. But the medicine's only going to stay good for so long, whether or not it has to be in you know, a refrigerator, things are only going to stay good for so long. And, you know, if you don't have doctors or nurses who know dosage, who know how to take care of things, and you're, you know, you're like in The Walking Dead, where the one girl sort of became the doctor and had to guess and look at books. It's, it's automatic, you see that character, you know, that character is going to be gone. And so you end up sort of maybe going through characters really quickly. Do you think, but even I was going to say, oh. do you think it's um, because also that we we don't we're not comfortable with writing people with disabilities because that c- crops up across any genre, um, um, in people with um, not even terminal illnesses, just chronic illnesses which have to be constantly managed. Maybe it's not just um, the practicalities of of plot devices, but the fact that we're you know that, that most books you pick up are full of especially in genre they're full of kind of naturally hale and hearty people whose only real concerns in life are whether they're going to get eaten by that dragon or not yeah i, I think and that's a really it's a really good point i mean I, one of my phd students right now is studying disability uh, representation of disability in ya fiction you know and and it's not out there. And so, yeah, if you look at the normal population of people, not everybody who survived is going to be the rock. You know, you are going to have random body sizes and body shapes and levels of, of ability and disability. After, you know, the first wave of death, you're going to have, you know, a, a, an interesting mix of people left. And small things will take you out. Like, you know, you have really bad dental hygiene now if you can't find toothpaste and you don't brush your teeth because you're running from monsters or whatever and you get a tooth infection and that infection goes through your blood and you're dead done and so from that to then yes you have somebody who's in a wheelchair who's you know otherwise healthy but you know has to use a wheelchair and you're running from zombies (laughs) what do you you don't see that in the books and i think that's what's the most interesting thing because we're not all hail and hearty and we don't stay hail and hearty for very long when we don't have food when we when we don't have um access to clean water and things exactly well like you know what happens to a house if people move out if people move out of a building and the building gets left for you know a few years it starts to fall apart same thing happens to us we are used to our creature comforts we're used Mm -hmm. to like you say fresh water and good food and access to medicine and decent mattresses you know, yeah. Tiffany would not survive long sleeping on concrete. Sorry. 
So we've talked about obviously um, women and how they're dealt with and men as well. But what about the physiological change, challenges faced by other types of characters, such as non-binary or transgender characters? I mean, I know they're not very prevalent in fiction uh, in general, which is you know something we all hope to address. But how are they in apocalyptic fiction? Do they turn up at all? No, um, unfortunately, <laughs> I I really I got called out on this, and it was it was a good call out when I first gave the paper at Worldcon last summer. A trans woman in the audience said, hey, what about us? What about trans women? What about trans men? What's going to happen? How come you didn't talk about it? And I thought, yes, that's such a good point. And it's, you know, bad on me for not thinking about it. And if you start to break it down, you know, um, these some of these people, they or they take, you know, they have access to hormones. And they take the hormones to keep their bodies at a certain status that they want. And so depending on where they are in the transitive process, you know, trans men may revert back to experiencing menstrual periods and be able to become pregnant. And we know how dangerous the world already is for those un- undergoing transition. And the end of the world is going to become much more dangerous in an apocalyptic scenario. Not only, you know, are you dealing with nuclear fallout, aliens or zombies, whatever, but you're dealing with your body then reverting back to something you don't want and then being in danger of being attacked by other people, of, you know, what whatever else happens to you when you don't have access to the hormones and the other medicines that you need. And I've not, in none of my stuff, have I ever seen any any of it at all. And so there's an open market for somebody who... If they want to write about, you know, uh, transgender people at the end of the world and possibly I'm working on a, a apocalyptic novel right now. And I should probably think about that some more. That definitely sounds like there is going to be a market. for that. And there's so many, like you say, so many different things you could could explore. And you've got the peril of being a woman in post-apocalyptic fiction, because I read a lot of dystopian novels and post-apocalyptic and the women do not come out well of those things. But like you say, how much how much worse if you're trans and not only trying to deal with um, reverting to the way things were, but also people treating you in the way that they treated you and, and all the consequences of that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think if you're if you're trans and this is a terrible scenario, but everybody wants um, women who can have babies <laughs> and you they look at you possibly as somebody who if they keep you off the hormones, you can maybe, you know, add to the population sometime in the future. And, and you know, you're used as that instead of having some autonomy. We've discussed some very deep topics here, and uh, so I'd like to, to take it back to a bit more lighthearted um, <laughs> element and say so you make an interesting parallel within your talk between women and zombies, and in particular armpit hair. <laughs> so do you want to elaborate on that for us? <laughs> oh, goodness, women and zombies. Well, one thing I talk about at, toward the beginning of the talk is about, you know, the end of the world and how we don't we don't deal well with bodies in general, like we talked about. And how there's that word sanitary. Um, menstruation is, as, as I said earlier, it's, it's pretty much absent in fiction as it is in real life. And we have the blue water and the feminine hygiene product ads, etc. And when there's anything that sort of breaks that barrier, you know, it's called disgusting or, you know, brave. It, it's given all these labels. And a lot of the comments are from women because we've been socialized to think that things that our bodies do is gross. And so I started to think about the word sanitary because you know, female characters need sanitary products. And so it means that without the stuff, we're unsanitary, which I thought was kind of ridiculous, because if you have, you know, a zombie apocalypse, for instance, it's walking corpses, you know, things that can can contaminate water and attract flies and cause diseases. But the women are the unsanitary ones. And I thought it was just kind of hilarious. Um, And one of the books, the book I mentioned one second after, um, an electromagnetic pulse knocks out all the the like electronics in the United States it taints it back to Little House in the Prairie times, and there's this there's this hall uh, town the the town's like a mayor and doctor and like the main few people get together and have a meeting, and the mayor's a woman everybody else is a guy, and the doctor asks the the mayor about women's needs, and he says uh, you know we don't really think about it because we're guys but you know do you have a good supply of feminine hygiene products. And she says for this month and she blushes and he says, well, there, there's your problem because, you know, you haven't thought about this, but, you know, we're, everybody's going to have to go back to acting the way they did back in the pioneer days. But, you know, people aren't going to bathe and their diet's going to be poor and there's going to be a huge infection rate and there's going to be things we haven't thought about. 
And they never, they never explain how women having their period and not having, you know, tampons is going to suddenly make everybody die of infection. It's, it's totally never explained. And, and the mayor blushes, which really made me crazy. And, and so, you know, here we have these zombies, these walking corpses, and nobody seems to be worried about that. Everybody's worried about women bleeding. So tell us about armpit hair. Where does that come into it? Oh, so the armpit hair. So I started thinking, I mean, you know, talking about menstruation, that's like big representation because people are kind of freaked out about it. So I thought, okay, what about small representation of women's bodies? And I remember watching Lost, which I loved. Yes, I know I ended badly, but I still loved it. And I remember one episode where Kate was in like sort of a cage. She was with Sawyer and she put her hands up. And I thought, she doesn't have any armpit hair. What the hell? And so I started going down that rabbit hole when I was working on this paper to see what was going on with that, because it's the same thing in The Walking Dead. Nobody's got any bloody armpit hair. You're running from zombies. When are you shaving? And, you know, where are you getting the razors and the soap, etc.? And it's it's a it's a meme. It's a thing. BuzzFeed did a list about it, about women in peril in TV and movies who don't have armpit hair. And I just thought it was hilarious that, you know, we don't even get to have armpit hair. We're never going to get to have periods if we can't have armpit hair. (laughs) (laughs) And just a couple weeks ago, I watched the new um, uh, the new little women that was on the was it on BBC. Mm. Oh, it was really good. Yeah. But there's a there's a moment where Joe has armpit hair. Oh, I noticed that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, doesn't yeah. it jump out? It almost I was makes so you excited. Do a take. You're like, oh my I know. God. I was like, oh, my, I was so excited. I tweeted it. <laughs> or yes. I put it on Facebook or something. Yeah, we see it that rarely where, with, with women on screen, don't we? It's just, it's, it's going mm-hmm. back to what you said about sanitized, you know, <laughs> well, even our images of, of women are sanitized. Um, I don't know. What, where does that come from? Could you blame the porn industry for it? Um, well, um, I, don't, I don't know how much you could blame that, but I think, I mean, if you, I used to collect these books. I, I wish I still had them, but because I've moved to the UK, I don't have them anymore. But there was a whole sort of subgenre of books for women. This is like in the 50s and the 60s about how to, about how to be a, a good woman and a good wife. And you just saw this actually in action on um, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is amazing if you haven't watched it, go watch it, where she, the wife at the time, you know, looks perfect and beautiful and all made up and everything. And, and the husband comes home and she has dinner ready and the, ch- the children are quiet and she doesn't tell him all of her problems, you know, feeds him dinner. And then they go to bed. And he, when he, as soon as he's asleep, she gets out of bed. She goes in the bathroom. She takes off her makeup, puts her hair up in curlers, goes back, lays in bed, and then wakes up before him to go back into the bathroom, put her makeup back on, fix her hair, come back to bed and look perfect. Oh, my God. That's chilling. It's so it's like this weird ingrained social thing that that's us performing being women. And so part of performing being women is to not have armpit hair and to have perfect eyebrows and et cetera, et cetera. Because you watch The Walking Dead. Nobody has chapped lips. I, I live with chapstick in my pocket. Like, me, me too. And I, I don't have zombies chasing me. So, you know, it's like that's how, you know, characters perform being women on screen even in a zombie apocalypse. Uh, there's so much to it. Like my brain hurts trying to think of all the layers. Um, do you think men uh, are kind of subjected to that same level of um, kind of life micromanagement? Cause it doesn't seem like it, but you know, I, I don't know um, from the surface. It looks like this is a particularly gendered thing. I think it's, um, I think it's more gendered than not. I think it's, you know, more, more female than male. Um, I, I think like that my generation of men, not, but I think younger generations of men are starting to do this sort of thing. You know, they're whitening their teeth. They're getting spray tans. They're dealing with their eyebrows, which some of them need to, frankly. They're, you know, they're, they're they have more <laughs> no. product than I do for their hair. And, and so I, I don't know how much of it is, I don't know how much of it is like this idea of taking better care of yourself and how much of it is the idea of, being prettier for somebody else Mm -hmm. but it feels like younger the younger generation of guys are performing in this way as well but but they're still allowed to be guys and they're growing up on porn where women are not allowed to be bodies that we are we're performing even more like with the no hair thing which is a whole other kettle of monkeys (laughs) 
Mm. Do you know, I saw um, The Shape of Water a few days ago. And oh, I haven't seen it yet. I want to see it so bad. It basically, oh, it's really good. Um, it basically opens with um, a scene with the main character um, masturbating in the bath. And I was so shocked because, like, you don't see with uh, women doing it. They, they, it's so, that's so candid. And I mean, not shocked on, on to see something like that. I was, I was more shocked that it was actually portrayed in the first place because that's another thing that you could lump in with um, armpit hair and periods is, is, is female masturbation. Nobody, that, that seems to be a kind of like taboo subject. Oh, totally. I mean, absolutely. I, I, I've also written erotica. And so it's one thing I'm really interested in is how, you know, how we sexually perform and how we sexually deal with our lives. And yeah, I mean, we expect guys to go have a wank, but women having a wank is like, oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. In Gavin and Stacey, it, she talks about it and completely shocks the guys around her. Which is hilarious because they just, you know, throw off the word and nobody think nobody blinks an eye. But you know, she's having a wink and that's like freaks everybody out. Mm-hmm. And and it's oh, I just lost my whole train of thought. Oh, and it's 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 also related to this thing we're talking about, like you know, women performing and men performing, and and porn a little bit. And there's this this is really off topic, but it's one of those insidious things that drives me crazy. Is in the movies that came out, like when I was a kid in the 80s, when I was a teenager in the 80s, you know, especially like the sex romp comedies, like Porky's and that kind of stuff, you know, guys, guys have orgasms rather easily. Women do not. But because of these movies, this idea gets into our head that we're supposed to have orgasms rather easily. And it's, and now with porn being as, as, widespread as it is and having the problems it has i'm not anti-porn i just find there being problems with it because they don't really portray real life you know kids are growing up with this idea of we come really easily and we don't our bodies don't work that way and so it's there's a lot of untraining you know we do have armpit hair we do have crotch hair we do have issues with certain sexual things and so media takes our bodies and messes with them and then it messes with our heads and it takes a lot to untrain ourselves about these things I was just thinking about The Walking Dead and uh, I saw a little bit of Lost, but I was I was thinking about men's bodies in relation to that, which is not as dubious as it sounds when I say it out loud. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking you either get men who are really lean and, you know, they don't necessarily have to have a six pack, but they're lean and they're well muscled. Or you get guys who are clearly overweight, who are often portrayed as kind of being nerdy or. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, I kind of feel like there is certainly in post-apocalyptic fiction in particular, you almost get the impression that men can't survive unless they are overweight and intelligent or, you know, good with a weapon and in, you know, decent physical shape. So I, I do wonder about that as well. I can't really think of any guys that are kind of an all right shot, but a bit podgy around the middle with a bit of a beer belly. And I know that in post-apocalyptic fiction, obviously running from the zombies is going to get you fit. Um, but, but they started fit. Yeah, they yeah. do. They do. And nobody has a dad bod. No, exactly. No. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I just, I mean, I know they have, um, don't know if you've seen Zombieland, um, with Woody Harrelson. Oh, and, of course. <laughs> yeah. That, and, and the young lad in that has this little rule about, you know, cardio. You must keep up with your cardio, uh, if you want to r- outrun the zombies. And I think that is a, a point. And again, it comes back to the cell panel idea that the, the groups that, you know, are going to make the most successful stories are going to be the people who are fit and healthy and able to wield a, a crossbow or whatever, because in, you know, um, narrative natural selection, they are the ones who are going to, going to stay in the story. But I think with the, when you've got something like Walking Dead, um, where there's a huge cast of characters, there's no excuse for not having a couple of regular looking dudes on there, you know, and, and women as well. I mean, look at all the women. They're all really thin and they're, you know, their tops do up really nicely and there's, there's no little, you know, spare tires or anything. No, um, so and, I do I do wonder about uh, body image in post-apocalyptic worlds. It, yeah, I mean the guy, like you say, the guys are either they're they're built or they're schlubby and they're smart. Whereas for the most part, and there are some exceptions, the women are all just pretty. Yes, you know, the, unless they can thing really outstanding. Even Carol, though she's older, is pretty. You know, and and like the kind of the kind of chubby girl who ended up being the doctor got killed off really quickly. Yeah, there was also a problem with that because she was a lesbian, and that's you know unfortunate whole other oh, thing going yeah. on in media. Yeah. But but yeah, the guys are hot or they're smart, and the women are pretty. And it, it 
I would like to think that I'd be smart enough to outsmart some other people and survive for a little while as, you know, out of shape as I am. But who knows? I'll probably get thrown over the wall. So you mentioned um, Carol there, and we've obviously discussed periods and childbirth. But what about the older female characters who are either menopausal or postmenopausal and who clearly can't have babies to repopulate the world? Does post-apocalyptic fiction treat them any differently to younger female characters or do they just have as rough a ride as everybody else? Well, they don't show up very often. Like you say, it's, you know, you're going to have to run fast and do a lot of work and everything else to survive. And so, you know, if you can't do that stuff, you don't survive and you die off or you do that stuff and it, the stress of it and the doing all of it without a lot of food is going to kill you off and you don't survive. So there's not a lot of, and we also have a lack of older female protagonists across the board in books and in movies, etc. which I like to undo. I like to write about older women because they know things. So in the books that I looked at, there weren't hardly, you know, hardly any at all. You know, if you're Carol in the walking dead, or if you're on the cast of Cockneys versus zombies, which is hilarious and terrible, you know, it's all young people. And so there were just a couple books. Um, there's a book called I've Waited and You Have Come by Martine McDonough. And the protagonist is a middle-aged woman and who's, she's looking for, well, a boyfriend, companionship and sex. And her eyes aren't great. Her bladder's kind of going to hell. And she actually talks about the smell of unwashed female bodies. And she's like, that's like the only place I ever saw where you talk about, you know, you can smell yourself when you sit down sort of thing. And but menopause doesn't mentioned. It's only mentioned in one book where this woman who's um, sort of surviving on her own, like there's other people nearby, but she stays away from them. And and she talks about going through menopause and she says, well, I stayed healthy. Everything was OK. Like I had a couple of bad teeth and I took them out myself. And but of course, there was the menopause. And she says the design of the reproductive system in the human female leaves a lot to be desired. And that's all we get. <laughs> so nobody talks about like you know the the end of things and all the things that your body goes through when you go through menopause because your body and your brain go through a lot of weird stuff and and that's going to affect how you how you act and how you deal with the world and how you deal with the end of the world but but nobody talks about it and i don't know if it's because you know talking about anything having to do with women and reproduction is icky to some people or because they haven't experienced it they just haven't thought about it you know male writers don't tend to think about older women you know unless it's their mom and they love their mom and they think you know but but they don't tend to think about older women and they don't tend to think about what older women go through it's menopause is one of those things that again like menstruation is sort of behind closed doors and i would like to see that change because i think older women are badass Absolutely. I mean, we only need to look at Carol to uh, to see exactly how badass they can be. Pretty much, yeah. I, I do have a soft spot for her. So, since you've given this talk, have any audience members come up to you and suggested books which might address some of the issues you raise? Well, a couple of times I've had people come up and say, oh, have you read, you know, XYZ? And they've mentioned, like, when I was at Worldcon, um, the the Japanese group who was there one of them took me down and gave me um, a, a like a graphic novel, a manga sort of thing. That, but it was it was about if I can remember, it's upstairs. I want to say it was about like female soldiers and external uteruses, if I can remember correctly. So it had to do with you know reproduction, but not so much what I was dealing with. And there have been a couple people who've come up and said, "Oh, you should read this or this," and I've written it down and then unfortunately lost the paper. That happened at FantasyCon. But there hasn't been a lot of, you know, oh, here's an absolute thing that you haven't seen that is that absolutely one-to-one relates to what you're talking about. A lot of times it's just, here's a cool end-of-the-world scenario. Maybe there's something in there, you know. So I'm always open to new to new stuff. And like you say, I need to read the Stephen King, Owen King book. It's on the shelf. Absolutely. I mean, another one, when I was thinking about menstruation, the other one I thought of was um, Pitch Black. Um, spoilers, so if you ever desperately want to watch Pitch Black, I wouldn't listen now. But there is um, there is a character in it who starts off looking like a boy, and it turns out to be a girl, and she's given away because she is euphemistically bleeding. And it's almost, and the look she gives them when he says, oh, no, that one's a girl because, you know, the, the things that are hunting us can smell her blood. And they're like, what blood? She's not bleeding. And he goes, 
not a wound or something along those lines. The implication is massively clear. And the poor girl just breaks down in tears because obviously what she's crying about is that, you know, the evil things are hunting her. But I always thought that was a really terrible portrayal in a way to kind of it was almost a bit lazy, really. Like, oh, she must be a girl because she's bleeding and they can smell the blood. It's like both gross and and just it could have been so much better. So I was always really annoyed at that. But um, thinking about bodily functions, I have to give a shout out to um, the Mountain Man series by Keith C. Blackmore, which is post-apocalyptic fiction. Um, it's very, very blokey. Um, it's about uh, one particular um, individual. And it starts off with him in uh, living in a house with solar panels. Would you believe it? Um, but he I was always really taken by it by the fact that he says, who would have thought that in, in a post apocalyptic world, the most important asset you could possibly get your hands on was toilet roll. And I love this because he goes out and he gets he gets drugs, he gets booze, he gets all the stuff he needs for his house. And it's like, wow, and I found a fantastic way of toilet roll today. Um, and, you know, he bargains it with other people as well. And I just really like that because it was such a it was such a unique approach. And the, the main character, Gus, was very much like I say, he was he was a very kind of scratchy balls, um, belch, kind of a, a bloated bloke. <laughs> Um, but he was endearing and it was it was very realistic. And it was, again, very refreshing to just have a character that. It did go to the toilet and did put, you know, put as much um, interest in finding toilet roll as he did in finding bullets for his gun. That's so, great. yeah, a shout out to Keithy Blackmore that we, we could have <laughs> done. We could do with a bit more like that, but maybe dealing with older women or women in general or transgender characters or anybody else. So let's hope we get some more fiction like that coming along. Yeah. And it's it's the little things. I mean, think about your day to day life. If you're out and you get caught short and you don't have any tampons in your bag, it just creates such a big to do you know you've got to borrow one from somebody or go to the store and not bleed all over your pants and do all this other stuff so yeah at the end of the world having really good toilet paper would be awesome (laughs) awesome for both sexes (laughs) exactly well i think i speak for lucy and myself and all our listeners when i say that i never thought tampons could be so interesting or so controversial if there are any authors out there looking to write a post-apocalyptic fiction and you would do well to create a story that focuses on gender diversity, older characters, those with chronic illnesses, the often neglected practicalities of repopulating the planet, the perils of going to the toilet, or simply the ongoing hunt for underarm razors. Thank you for joining us, Tiffany. It's been illuminating. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper. We'll see you next time. <laughs>